Hello and welcome to What Goes Around. My name is Deb Grant. And my name is Eamon Murtagh. And on this week's show, we have Marshall Chess. I was intending to do a very short interview about his new release. And instead, we chatted for nearly an hour and he was a fountain of amazing musical information. So you're going to love this interview. It's one of my favourites we've done. And we have a feature with DJ Greg Belson about the wonderful world of gospel music. And before all that, of course, we're going to talk. And this week we talk about Deb and filing records. Again, I know, but we're obsessed with records. It just happens that way. And of course, we will be talking about my new project, which is lovewillsavetheday.fm, a brilliant new community-focused radio station. DJ Deb Grant, please inform me what is going around in your world. Well, there's been a big change in my life. Obviously, I moved house a couple of months ago, as we discussed. Mm. And before I moved house, my record shelves, they looked quite neat and tidy. But the filing system, I mean, there was no filing system, basically. There had once been a vague system of filing in terms, I know we're, you know, I'm shaking. Can you hear me shake my head? Yeah, it's, it's especially shameful because, as you know, my sister is a, has a PhD in archiving. Actually, came and we've on this done show, a show about this. Exactly, talking about we've the best actually, way to file records. We've actually done this, and you you've got to well, tell me. Tell me, have you tackled the uh, the mess of records now? Well, previously, at one point, far earlier in my life, they were arranged in terms, of, kind of vaguely in terms of genre and alphabetically. But you know how that's not ideal. Certain genres mm. bleed into other genres and you just end up with, um, you know, more questions than the system answers, really. Uh, so then it was like there'd be certain regular gigs I had where I'd be taking certain records. And so the records I would bring to those gigs would end up sort of mm-hmm. bunched together. But inevitably... I would never be able to find if I was looking for something specific, forget about it. I was just never able to find anything. So one of the things, uh, lovely Campbell, who helped me move and came over from New Zealand, obviously he just had a tourist visa, so he wasn't able to work. So I put him to work or rather he (laughs) volunteered uh, to file my records because he was even more horrified than you are at the fact that they were just in a massive um, jumble. See, this is the sort of influence you need on your life. I know, although (laughs) I mean, not only did he alphabetize my records um he also cataloged all of them on discogs and <gasps> separated a bunch of stuff out to sell oh that is that's work that's yeah, a lot of work i know i had to buy him dinner <laughs> <laughs> quite right too quite right too. do you know i did that so when i, when I started with discogs mm. um it was actually i was living in portsmouth and i started putting them all in and I started with kind of the, the rainy bits and uh, then I did some other bits. I, I, it was kind of, I was hit and missing, but I was just putting stuff in. And then I moved and of course all the records moved around when oh, I yeah. moved. And then I didn't know what I'd put in and what I hadn't. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So I spent this absolutely maddening period of a few months, like typing in the name of the, the thing or the serial number, hitting the thing and then it pop up and I go, ah, oh, and I go to press it and oh, I've already, I've already <laughs> entered that one. Okay, so, you know, and then because they were all mixed up, you know, like you'd have... Three that were in there, two that weren't, yeah. one that was in there, four that weren't, you know, and it was, oh, it took years. It's such, <laughs> a t- it's such a task. And like, I would come home after work and Campbell would just be like sitting, surrounded by records, like on the sofa, just records like everywhere. Like dream guy. Yeah, I know, I know, literally. <laughs> Sometimes shirtless. It's pretty Woo! amazing. 
Um, but uh, but yeah, he managed to get them all uh, alphabetized and on Discogs before he left. And he had such stern words with me as he was leaving. He was like, you have to keep up this filing system. Like, yes. what can we do to make sure that you keep this up? Because if you ruin my filing system, I'm going to be really, really annoyed. Um, <laughs> but it's just like, I just, it's the Discogs cataloging and the alphabetizing. Mm. It's like, I don't trust myself because what's your you have everything filed in in terms of genre right and but this means yeah. Eamon that you have to get your records out for a gig put them in your bag and then file them all away perfectly right when you get back I yeah, just can't see myself I, doing that no you see I quite enjoy it I quite enjoy oh. it because I used to work in a record shop for a long time and there was a lot of filing involved there mm. um and I quite like now I get kind of zen about it so I you know I, 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 I the records are in the bags and then I kind of just dump them down when I come home and then Sunday morning put something nice on pull out the tunes and just slowly over the course of a couple hours just pop them all away and mm. have a little think about you know and just play the ones that you fancy as you as you're putting them out you know it's, it's it's quite a nice chill thing and at the end you've got this beautiful floor space in front of you and all your records are where they should be yeah, but I, I recommend I really recommend that I mean I'm, you've got it now but the the Discogs things is so handy yeah. Because the amount of times I've been in a record shop thinking, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. yeah that that actually happened to me very recently. I, I was very excitedly order a co- ordered a copy of the first Disco Not Disco compilation because I knew I had volume two because I bought it when I was like 14 or something. And mm. I thought I had, I thought I didn't have volume one. And then as I got the notification that it was winging its way to me, Campbell discovered volume oh, one in no, my records. There was, there it was. happened a couple of times. Um, so yes, it will be handy, but it's just like, I just, uh, this may surprise you, Eamon, but I'm not a very patient person. Well, that is an unsuspecting, well, yeah, no, listen, I don't think, I think in, in a way, you've got to look at it this way, that it's going to, it's going to save you time and effort, right? It's going to, because the amount of time you were scurrying around desperately trying to find something when you needed it. Yeah. As opposed to now, you know, it's there's no time pressure on filing them away, really. You need to get it done by the end of the day or whatever. I suppose that's true, but I like a tidy house. What do you do about compilations? Do you have a various section under each genre? N- that is the stupidest idea. We've, I'm sure I've mentioned this when we talked about that. Yeah. But people who file all compilations together, Yeah. that makes no sense. So how... You have to, that's because this is what we've been trying to figure out. Can we put things under name of compilation or of DJ or, or whatever? Mm. But I don't well, know. Because my my collection has like your A to Z, which is your, your standard music, your Beatles, your Stones, whatever. And then it, most of it's by genre. So what I do is I have compilations of a genre. Mm. In it. So there's a load of I've got a massive pile of disco compilations. Um, for example, and a load of like funk and soul compilations. They live with the funk and soul of the disco at the end, all squished up together. But I know someone who files any compilation in the same place as any other compilation. So you might have a heavy metal compilation next to a trip hop compilation. And that, my friends, is a war crime. (laughs) That's outrageous. Yeah. Yeah, no, compilations are tricky. And I, I, if I was filing them in, in, I probably would go under the title. Because let's face it, if you put under various, that's that ship has sailed. Yeah. yeah that would just be a mess. Yeah. So I would do it under the title if I'm going to put them into the A to Z. I would. Uh, but I normally, because with DJ stuff, you know, you want access quickly. So whatever I'm playing, if I have a comp, it will be in that general area. Yeah. 
This is good intel. I sh- I'll pass it on to Campbell. <laughs> no, I'll tell him he's, he's <laughs> when he comes very back to maintain. I think he's going to be a fine influence on you. It's yes, I, I hope so. I mean, the the threat of how furious he'll be if I don't keep up his filing. <laughs> he won't even be furious. I think I'll, he'll just be genuinely heartbroken because it's been his life's work for the past three months. Yeah, he's really yeah. he's really. Well, we'll keep him busy when he comes back. Well, ex- yeah, exactly. He's got to have something to do. God knows. Eamon Murder, what goes around? Well, you're not the only radio mogul on the airwaves Ooh. nowadays. Because I'm delighted to say I am part of a brand new radio station. Oh, congratulations. Always oh, said yeah. you're good on the radio. There you go, you see. Yeah. I get top tips from, a, from a pro. <laughs> um, Nate, you remember the Love Will Save the Day mailing list? I do. With lovely Jed Hallam. Yes. Uh, he basically started this mailing list... Basically, he was just doing playlists uh, and he wanted to share the music. So he started to share them around and then he's quite good at them. So lots mm. of people started joining in. And I think I met him, he just came out of the blue one day and said, do you want to do a playlist? And I was like, uh, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> but um, we've been firm friends ever since. And um, this mailing list here just grew and grew and grew and grew. Thousands and thousands of people started following it. And now he's decided with the rest of the posse, and there is quite a considerable posse now, uh, to start a radio station called Love Will Save the Day. FM. Yes, amazing. Uh, Jed is just one of the most pure of heart people. He is. Uh, he is any anytime anything good happens for him or to him, it just warms my heart. He's such a lovely yeah. man. Yeah, well, it's been really good, and it's been a real team effort as well. There's been loads of people involved, like getting it all together. And yeah. um, they're kind of broadcasting just weekends for now. So it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and the quality of the selectors, because this whole mailing list, this is like a WhatsApp group as well. Yeah. You know, it's people just offering, you know, their advice and recommendations and the recommendations, because all of these people are absolute music nuts. Mm-hmm. The recommendations are off the charts. Good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So for a couple of years now, I've been scraping little bits off this and, you know, finding certain records that way. And now they've all got radio shows around me and it's a joy. Like, oh. So much good stuff. So what's the vibe of your radio show? Has it got a theme or is it just stuff that you like? Well, I'm really enjoying myself, I have to say, because mm. uh, I've, I've split it into two. So I've got my usual Black Wax Solution radio show, which is basically funk, soul and disco. Mm. Um, and, but what I, what I realised, I had a funny conversation with someone about Northern Soul and old funk and things like that. And what they were saying was like, you know, there's so much value put on the old stuff. Do you know mm. what I mean? There's so much value put on old soul. In fact, in, for many people, the older, the better, mm. and the more obscure, the better, you know, the, the least well known, the better. And that's a, quite an interesting thing when you think about it. And then a couple of days later, I was DJing at home for fun, just old records from the 90s, mm. uh, electronic stuff, electro and techno. And I thought, why isn't there a machine Northern Soul? Do you know? Because techno and electro is so future-facing all the time mm. that you never, re- you know, records are old a week after they've been released. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And no one ever seems to go back and really look at the archive. And yeah. I, I was looking up at my shelves and I've got like, you know, 35 years of electronic music from of various genres up there, most of which won't ever get played out out mm. do you know what i mean because a those times have gone b i'm not playing in those sort of clubs and 
see kids probably want to listen to Drake. <laughs> but um, but I just thought what I'm going to do is I'm going to my second one. It's called the Electronic Workshop. It's on going to be on Sunday evenings, and I'm just going to go through old electronica, like electronica, ambient, techno, electro, weird stuff. It's yes. basically an electronic weirdo show are you talking my language i knew you'd appreciate that i knew you <laughs> I would because you're you're big on weirdos yeah <laughs> weird shit is my vibe that sounds amazing yeah. what a great idea no it's really nice so now you know i'm thinking now maybe i will try and get a little club night out of it as well because yeah. it'd be lovely to hear some of these out loud yeah i mean it's made um, for dancing right most of it exactly exactly and a lot of it dates extraordinarily well i kind of yeah. thought uh, maybe doing a whole show of you know retro electro would be uh, you know it, you'd start to see where the the, the rings on the tree had been, mm. had been formed do you know what I mean and some of that is true some of it does date obviously the rave stuff sounds ravey mm. and what, what not but you know a lot of it just sounds amazing still in fact especially the stuff from Detroit could have been made yesterday maybe maybe it's made 30 years ago it, it's really hard to tell because mm. it's very idiosyncratic and very um, heartfelt machine soul yeah so yeah so all i need now is a load of robots and i'll be happy <laughs> well you know you could um yeah we i mean siri was kind of interrupting our conversation at the beginning there maybe you could see uh, they're keen they're keen yeah to exactly <laughs> exactly obviously he knew something i didn't um but yeah that's very exciting congratulations so when does it start well it started we're doing a soft launch so we soft launched last weekend and uh basically you know we're not kind of making a big deal about it because there's a lot of technical stuff and this is a, very much a community focused radio station mm. right so it's it's run by a group of people who love records to the extent that they will spend hours of their free time making shows yeah. and putting them up this isn't some smooth operation you know with mega bucks behind it sure. so we're kind of learning as we go um and there's a few technical hitches here and there it's getting creaky but we're kind of ironing them out and i imagine in about two weeks time so easily by the time this comes out um we'll be broadcasting every weekend and the quality has been insanely high all kinds of music from super chill out sunday mornings to like banging garage and amma piano on on friday nights this sounds great i can't wait to tune in and it's good amy because i don't work friday nights Hey. So, uh, you know, my, my loyalty can wander elsewhere. There you go. Um, we got you covered. Keep it locked, yeah, as they say yeah. in the pirate stations. <laughs> now, to me, Greg Belson represents the very best of DJing culture, a man who's done more digging than a JCB. Greg has become one of the country's leading experts on gospel music. Through his Divine Chord radio show and countless compilations, he has become the very best kind of musical evangelist. It's a real pleasure to welcome Greg to What Goes Around to tell us why spiritual music matters. DJ Greg Belson, please make me believe in gospel. How are you? Well, I'm very good, thank you, sir. And thank you for that uh, resounding welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you, indeed. Thank you. Thank you. And one more time. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. Listen, <laughs> I have got had so much pleasure out of your work over the last few years. I mean, you have been digging gospel now for how many years? Actually, I, I, I looked this up recently. It was uh, 1993 was the very first gospel that record early? that I bought. 
So yeah, it was. So that's this year celebrates thirty years in the game, wow. which is uh, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of a little bit mind blowing, really. Yeah, nineteen ninety three, first record I purchased, knowingly knowing that it was a gospel record, um, was uh, actually the Lovers of God on the Shatinga record label. Uh, but the first record I actually bought, not realising it was a gospel record, uh -huh. was uh, Clarence Smith. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Oh yes, what a uh, great record! And, and just a fantastic record. Had absolutely no idea uh, uh, that sometimes I feel like a motherless child is a gospel evergreen. You know, yeah. it's a standard. And at the time, I just heard this amazing track played by my learned friend DJ Snowboy. Yeah, well, he's and, got a few uh, records. Yes, yes, and he's got some. He's got an amazing ear for great music. Yeah. And uh, when I heard him play that at a club night, I was running with DJ Vadim. Uh, I had to. I had to own that record. Like I say, didn't realise it was a gospel record at the time until I got the record in the post and noticed the label, which said Gospel Truth. Mm. I guess the the first question that always pops into whenever I say, um, you know, I'm into gospel and I, re I really love gospel and I show people my gospel collection or whatever. Uh, which is um, small but perfectly formed. Um, the first thing yeah. they always say, are you very religious? So I suppose I'd better ask you, are you very religious? Is this the calling? No, no, not at all. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't feel, um, I, I'm not a religious person per se, and I do get asked that question quite a lot. Some people don't understand that mindset in a way. Some people have said that if I'm not religious, then I must be missing something within the music. I, I disagree with that. Uh, I, I'm uh, just because I don't necessarily believe in the message of generic gospel doesn't mm. mean to say I can't enjoy the music. And ultimately, for me, gospel music is about the condition of the world that we are in and us as a people. It's about positive message messages and sometimes negative messages. It's not just celebrating a god or a being or a spiritual. Uh, entity or whatever it is so I think you don't have to be religious at all to enjoy what is offered by some of the most powerful recordings you're ever likely to hear what I love about gospel music myself is that um, I think all great music that the good stuff is always done with a very pure belief that this is the sound they want to make whether it's punk or metal or whatever it is there's a truth in what mm -hmm. they say and the great, of course, the great thing about gospel is these people really do believe what they're saying, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's the outpouring of the soul. Mm. Uh, this isn't uh, this isn't airs and graces. This is something that um, they absolutely believe intrinsically, uh, mm. and consequently, performances that come out um, of particularly if you are a fan of vocal soul music and um, vocals in general you, you will hear some of the most creative powerful uh, unique vocals within gospel music there's a certain amount of uh, misunderstanding about gospel music because I think a lot of people think that a anything that goes on in a church is going to reek of frankincense and dull old vicars doing their thing mm -hmm. and b that the, the, the gospel that appears in people's minds before they really listen to it is something that just belongs there and doesn't have any connection with the outside world. But of course, you've shown through your, your brilliant compilations that gospel can be funk, it can be disco, it can be all manner of different styles, can't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I agree with that 100%. As gospel is, for want of a better phrase, it's a very broad church. When you listen, start listening to music, um, it's, it's one of the most all-encompassing genres that I've ever come across. And when I first started collecting back in the mid-80s, I collected jazz. Jazz was my first love. Uh, and then I went on to um, include soul, secular soul recordings, funk 45s, etc., etc. I did, I did the trip, if you like. Yeah. But um, gospel is so all-encompassing in different styles, tenures, textures. I happen to kind of specialise, if you like, in air quotes, music from the mid-60s right up until the early 90s. Mm. It's particularly fascinating because it very quickly um, uh, accelerates from early soul music into disco, into modern soul, mm. all within a, quite a short time frame. So uh, I, I find, and, and you're absolutely right, the, the gospel it can be com completely misconstrued. Just by, even if you look at the lyrical content, people can get put off by somebody sometimes overly mentioning a god or mm. or the holy spirit or whatever and it's a shame that 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 happens um when really just try and focus on the performance and hopefully you'll get it if you know yeah. what I mean. <laughs> I mean i always say to people just every time he says god just replace it in your brain with baby <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right right i mean if you do look at a lot of secular soul recordings a lot of a lot of it isn't lyrically engaging yeah. At any rate, you know, a lot of it is, I, I, don't get me wrong, I, 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 there, there are so many beautiful soul recordings, some of which I own here, but uh, sometimes when it starts to get a little bit, love this, love baby, baby, love, love baby, it's, you know, you're not investing in the lyrical content there yes, either. Yeah. So, And often those uh, records, they are basically, I mean, certainly you look at Sam Cooke's work when, you know, he crosses over into mm -hmm. secular soul and some of those early recordings of his and, and many other uh, ex-gospel um, singers they are just basically gospel songs where they literally have replaced God with baby or love or whatever mm-hmm mm -hmm. yeah uh, absolutely um, and Sam is a good is a good starting point of, uh, and the soul stir is a very good starting point uh, I was actually recently I was in Philadelphia and we saw a a show by um, an artist, Ron of the Hip Tones, and he closed his show doing a version of A Change Is Gonna Come. Oh, amazing. Uh, which is, yeah, and it really was kind of something special. <laughs> so that's a tune that, that is 50, 60 years in the making, it still resonates today. That can be the power of gospel music. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I, one aspect I'd like to talk to you about a little bit, when I first got into gospel music, like I said, it was this guy, Mike McGonagall, and his compilations, and he used to specialise in finding old 78s, the real, you know, really early stuff from the, from the 30s and 40s. And I think initially what I, what I enjoyed about it was the, the feeling of history I got off it. You know, that these recordings, they're not recorded well. I mean, they're obviously very scratchy and there's loads of static noise about it. But when I listened to them, it was like my imagination suddenly went black and white and I was in a different place. And I could feel the history coming out of the audio, do you know? Yep. And I think mm -hmm. what's really interesting is that initial response that I had was actually quite a lot to do with the physical medium. And 
you have basically dedicated the last 30 years of your life to collecting what must be I mean, a few tons of plastic by now yeah yeah <laughs> you could say I mean I, was, I, was, I saw the other day there was a discussion going on on, on Facebook with you where someone was saying you know you're going to start I think it's Snowboy actually saying you're going to have to start thinking about what are you going to do with this because it's it's become a very important collection hasn't it um, I think so I think so um, I've been collecting uh, 45s and LPs from that era that I mentioned earlier um, for, as you say, 30 years. Uh, plus also I've been collecting a subsection, which I think is going to be quite important at some point, uh, of sermons. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know anybody that seems to be collecting sermons, or if they are, I'm not aware of them, but uh, I'd love to hear from you if you do. But I, And I think um, these pieces of vinyl uh, that uh, encapsulated absolute moments of history uh, people talking to their congregation about whatever issue it is of the day or, yeah. uh, um, and I have in the region of about close to a thousand sermon LPs wow really um, that's amazing yeah, I, I can, I which, just, you mentioning the fact mm -hmm. that of course these would be contemporary recordings that would reflect whenever mm -hmm. they were read out in church because church really you know in a way it's how, how uh, the congregation gets their news quite often and, exactly. and how, how they're asked to interpret the news through the lens of their their beliefs yeah and their pastor their their, their beloved pastor you know um when you actually start to discover what type of churches it is that we're talking about and you drive around certain areas like philadelphia like detroit chicago etc you realize that these really were micro ministries almost like um uh, just a converted house mm. where maybe the congregation was 25 to 30 people mm. but yet one day they press record on a on a player and recorded the session mm. so the, the, these these sermons um that i've been accumulating for some time uh, i i have a theory on those that they are 100 percent historical documents that are in danger of being lost um and i think at some point a museum or some kind of archival entity will benefit from from having those recordings and that's probably what I will do with mm. the sermons at some point. I think that's, that's laudable, a laudable thing to do. I think gospel has this particularly interesting angle where because it's based around a congregation these records could be pressed up for less than 100 people couldn't they? I mean this could be really small like VIP runs. Well we have the case in point for Divine Disco compilation that we did with Cultures of Soul. Uh, there was a track on the uh, volume two by Jesse R. Maguire, a version of Jesus is on the main line. Mm -hmm. I managed to locate, uh, I dug a 45 in the heart of Detroit. Um, managed to find Jesse uh, and got the, the track licensed for the compilation, but not before he told us the whole story. One of which is the 45 was recorded and the wrong labels were put on the 45. Um, consequently, the the church that funded the recording had an argument with Jesse that it was faulty product uh, and decided to bin everything. Oh, no. Uh, uh, yeah, and what uh, they'd only pressed up 50 copies just for the congregation. Wow. Um, so whatever I found in the heart of Detroit was probably rescued out of a trash can somewhere. That's amazing. I mean, um, that's truly... I mean, yeah. This is why I said in the intro, you know, I really admire you as a DJ because 
you know, you are living in a world that is a million miles away from the <laughs> speed and, in, and convenience of downloading a WAV. I mean, you really yeah. <laughs> do go out and dig, don't you? Absolutely, and it's I absolutely love it. Uh, every day I go out digging, wherever possible. Um, I, I, I dig around Los Angeles and around California. That's a relatively easy dig to do because it's local to me. But uh, traveling to other cities and to other states is essential because gospel very often didn't make it out of the out of the uh, certain cities or states for that very reason that I just said a lot of this stuff is micro pressings yeah. um, which uh, only were intended for the smallest congregation on the on, 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 a, um, on a street corner housing facility you know Amazing. so uh, and when you find records like that it's just the biggest thrill what's the, what's the strangest sort of places you found these records there's quite a few that come to mind but let me tell you the story of one a record that Keb Dodge was playing out at Deep Funk at the time and he used to have it covered up. I used to dance to this record uh, and I would bug him each day, each time he played it. <laughs> Can you tell me what the record is, Kev? I love this record. It's a beautiful record. I need to know it. Anyway, I bugged him enough that he eventually took the labels off and he said, there it is. Yeah, you're, you're an annoying little <laughs> bugger. <you." laughs> and um, he showed me the, the label and off I went and I was actually going on a digging trip two days later, I ended up in St. Louis, the Electric Ladyland record store. And there was a guy working there and he said, you need to come to my house, I've got records in the basement. And okay, fine. So we went to the, the house, went into the basement and oh my God, <laughs> it, it was like walking into the train spotting toilet. Wow. The stench was pretty bad <laughs> um, he, he had two of the furriest cats that you ever see sitting on top of all of the records so fur balls everywhere but we had to get through it yeah. and in that in that stack I found 13 copies of the record that Kerb had showed me was his was his latest cover-up wow, all together uh, just double yeah all together in a, yeah in a batch it was just right there I, you felt like you needed a, a Four day shower when you came out of there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is there a lot of uh, cover upping and uh, you know, is it is it is it competitive? Do you do you find people getting a bit narky about what you're playing and what they've got? Uh, I I have seen cover ups, and I'll be honest with you, in 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 uh, days of old, I, I kind of went trod that path a little bit myself. Never felt comfortable doing it. It's a strange thing, it, isn't it? Yes, and I never felt comfortable doing it. I have had some run-ins with people in the past that have asked me to keep quiet on what <laughs> what they are covering up. Yeah. You, I, I know what that cover-up is, and they told, well, can you keep it quiet? And I'm like, oh, well, I played it on the radio show. <laughs> and so, you know, so in my opinion, um, I guess it's not for me to tell you what to do as a DJ, but I don't really approve of the... Of the, of the yeah. Of the practice myself well i have to say um you know I, I love the fact that you've found these records and put out these compilations and you know they are just like gold dust to me they're, they're so amazing right. to find to hear those sounds in a place where you know i mean that we couldn't be further away from the the rural south of america do you know what i mean and it, right right i feel like you've done a great service to a lot of people both by actually sharing this music because 
you know, music is there to be shared. And uh, and certainly, if you're talking about gospel, I mean, it, it literally means good news, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, the whole point yes, of gospel exactly. is that you go and tell the people, so. Exactly, exactly. It's lovely for us to get that music. And I, I, it feels nice as well to know that you're doing this properly and, you know, getting those, those artists paid and giving them... Yeah letting them know that what they made so long ago actually is appreciated still and people still do love the sounds they made. Yeah, I, I have to say absolute props to the record labels that I work with, you know, um, that uh, they, they, they insist on going, that, that they're doing things correctly. Uh, and that's, that's exactly how I would want it. I had a great story actually that um, uh, I, I posted up one or two things on a YouTube clip by, um, and one of them was one of my favourite 45s of all time by Herman Harris on and the voices of faith, hope and love. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. And um, Mr. Herman Harris himself reached out to me and said, I can't believe that my record is, is on the internet and I, I'm absolutely thrilled by it. And we developed a relationship, oh, um, which was amazing. Got the track licensed and um, I happened to find a, a, a copy, a second copy of the 45 on a digging drum and um, I had sent him it as a Christmas present uh, one year. Uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't know he was coming, it was coming in the post. Yeah. I just sent it to him and uh, I, he phoned me, um, him and his, his daughter were <laughs> practically in tears at the end of the phone, oh, uh, which, was, which was, I haven't seen this record since 1977. <laughs> when it was recorded so yeah so that was special moments like that um, uh, keep the heart warmed uh, on and what we're doing is I mean I, I love doing it at any rate and I would do it reg regardless but when you actually get messages of warmth and love like that it really does make you want to keep going and go the extra mile well I really hope you do because it, you've certainly brought a lot of joy into my life and uh Certainly one of my favourite things when I'm DJing now is is playing, you know, full-on spiritual music to drunk atheists. And <laughs> <laughs> always goes down Perfect. really well. <laughs> Great. Excellent. So tell us, Greg, uh, I mean, you've, you've brought out some amazing compilations, the Savoy ones and the, uh, the Divine Chord ones. Um, what, what's what's next in the pipeline for you? You've still got some, some more stuff coming out. And tell us where we can listen to your, your music and your radio shows. The radio show is the Divine Court Gospel Show. It airs the fourth Saturday of every month on dublab.com, uh, generally dropping at uh, 10 a.m. US PST, so in a relevant time zone near you. And you can check out all of the archives available on my Mixcloud page, which is just DJ Greg Belson. You can check me out also on Soho Radio and No Barriers Radio. As far as compilations are concerned, I'm working on several things at the moment which is great uh, we're hoping to have uh, Honest John's have licensed fully licensed for the first time from Universal Music who are notoriously difficult to license from mm. uh, a Checker compilation Checker Gospel Excellent. and that will be coming that will be coming out hopefully in the, the beginning of 2024 uh, I'm also working on another Divine Funk compilation with Cult Cultures of Soul uh, and also, hopefully, one or two things with Numero Group, but I can't say too much about those. Listen, Greg, yeah. it's lovely to talk to you, and thank you for all the work you do in this field. And uh, I just wish you the very best of luck. May your digs always bear fruit. 
Ha, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on here, I mean, it was uh, been a pleasure talking to you. What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. That's right! Name that tune. Name that tune. In the music industry, the word legend is used a little too often, but what else can you say about our guest today? Marshall Chess cut his teeth in the family business, which happened to be Chess Records, a label so influential it can genuinely claim to be the home of rhythm and blues and rock and roll. My first Chess compilation had John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, Sonny Boy Williamson, Etta James, and well, I could go on, but that would only serve to touch on the very beginnings of Marshall's career. He went on to form Cadet Records, he worked with Mick and Keith to create Rolling Stone Records, he signed The Rotary Connection and Minnie Ripperton, worked with Sire. He even produced an audio comic book with KRS-One for Marvel. I kid you not. Never one to stand still in the industry, he has embraced the world of modern music and successfully fuses it with his own family legacy. And at 81, Marshall is still pushing things forward with New Moves, a star-studied concept album that fuses hip-hop with the very roots of rock and roll that his father embraced some 70-plus years ago. It's my great honour to talk to the legendary Marshall Chess. How are you, Marshall? I'm doing great, and it's great to be here with you. And I love that intro. It <laughs> made me feel, uh, puffs me up. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I have to good. say, I mean, I was looking at uh, the, the, your sort of Wikipedia and list of achievements, and you have had a long, I mean, you were basically born in a That's record it. label, weren't you? That's the thing. I'm one of the few people. I was born. I was born in 1942. My father went into the music business in 1945. Wow. So my whole life, it was like if my father had a fruit stand, I would know about apples and oranges. You know? <laughs> I mean, I was raised with it, and my father uh, was a workaholic, and uh, my mother. You know, I was the first son. I had two sisters. And my mother, of course, you're never at home, you're never home. Uh, he wasn't playing baseball with me. He was really working all the time. Yeah. I, was at the, I was at the office. I loaded trucks. I worked the record press. And I even went uh, to the first chess recording session in 1947. I slept on metal folding chairs wow. to a jazz record called My Foolish Heart, Gene Ammons. So I've been around my whole life, you know. Yes, it must have been. I mean, were you were you actually like hanging around the studio a lot? Did you did you yes. see all these amazing people come in and record yes. the session? I saw them. I saw them. I knew them. Uh, I was there as much as I could. I was enamored with the whole thing. Uh, I had a little uh, motorbike when I was thirteen illegally. I used to drive there every day in the summer. Really, I, I wanted to be around my father. Really, that's how it mm -hmm. began. <clears throat> and he was always there. And my uncle, his younger brother, I became very close with. And, uh, you know, and they were immigrants from Poland. Mm -hmm. So they had no problem with that immigrant style. In fact, my father, uh, one time after uh, I began working full time and no one told me what to do. I was coming there every day and I asked my father, we were at a car wash, and I said, you know, what, you know, what's my job? I'm, I come every day. No one's told me how much I'm getting paid, what I'm going to do. He said, I won't say the swear word, but he said, you stupid fool. He said, your job's watching me. <laughs> and that's, that was how I was raised. So he dragged me around little by little. Uh, the first time he told me, uh, I have to go to the bank. I, the, I, we had the studio upstairs 
uh, of the offices. He said, I'm going to the bank, go up. Uh, and I, there has, you know, you, you have to go up to the studio to take care of it. I said, well, what do I do? He said, just tell them to take another one, take another one. He said, because if you don't, they're just going to sit around doing nothing. And one of those takes might be the one. Mm. So that's how I began producing with take another one, you know. Wow. I actually used that same technique on this new latest album to get the last track done, you know. Yeah, well, the album yeah, seems to have a, a, a the album's got a really lovely symmetry for you know from for your whole career really because um, you've got like the cream of hip hop and some fantastic musicians all working That's together so to kind of recreate the original feel of the the blues and rock and roll records that belong to the chess table. Tell us a little bit about New Moves because this has been quite a, a, a long project to get off the ground it's a isn't it? long years and years project it started out with an idea well first of all in 1981 uh, chess records was purchased uh, and owned by a hip-hop label called sugar hill records in new oh. jersey where hip-hop was born grandmaster flash yeah melly mel so uh, i went there to see this joe robinson the owner and I said, some lawyers had come to me, and I was after the Stones, and I was you know, getting rid of taking too much of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's the best way to put it. <laughs> and they said, look, Chess has been uh, bought by this small label in New Jersey. Try to buy it back. We'll finance it and give you 49%. So I went to see this Joe Robinson, the hip-hop mogul, and he said to me, Man, if you'd, have, if you'd have come here a month ago, he said, I'd have, I'd have kissed your feet. He said, me and Sylvia just bought a Rolls Royce, and they had that first giant hip-hop called Rapper's Delight yeah. by the Sugar Hill Gang, which had sold a million. And then he said, well, I got this chess catalog. What can I do to get you to help me with it? And, um, you know, my son was just born that year, 81, mm -hmm. and uh, I went to work there. I came from the country. I, I, I hired two people. We had just three of us, and I began to put together all these compilations. And because I love studios, and this is the day really right before the electronic hip-hop era really took off, mm. I started hanging out in the studio with all the musicians, and that's where I met my partner since 1981 on music, Keith LeBlanc, who was the drummer of the Sugar Hill Rhythm Section. And then the guitar was Little Axe, Skip McDonald. Mm. And I began hanging out there. And then a few years went by, a year and a half, two years went by, and um, I started getting screwed. I wasn't getting my money for the <laughs> work I was doing, you know, typical music business thing. So I asked Joe Robinson, well, he owed me $40,000. And I said, Joe, can you give me studio time? I want to make records again. And he had put out a, a record of Malcolm X's speeches. Mm -hmm. And we and I, I uh, got together with Keith LeBlanc, who I be, he was the one I became the closest with. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, I made this record with Malcolm X's speeches. And then Sugar Hill thought they owned it. He forgot about the letter I had with the studio time. There was a lawsuit. And that became the first project I did with hip hop and with, uh, you know, with Keith LeBlanc. And it actually came out in England. On, I saw a big poster in Brixton of that Malcolm X's picture back then in the 80s called No Sellout, Malcolm X. Mm. And, I got, and our partner was Malcolm X's wife. It was really very interesting. 
who, and the first thing she told me when I met her was, you know, I hate white people. That's how it started, you know. That's good to get this so, out of the way, isn't it? <laughs> let's get it out. But you know, I I, I was uh, I, she told that to the wrong guy because I I probably was more comfortable around at that time in my life. I was more comfortable around black people than I was around white people, and that that was my whole life. I was raised with black people and and felt very comfortable, uh, you know, in that situation. So we became friends and. Uh, the record never came out in America due to the lawsuit, but that was that's how I started. And Keith and I, we we just years after that, we decided to try to do a blues record using uh, samples of the original singers, like Muddy's voice with Keith's tracks. Mm. And there were a lot of legal problems with uh, Universal, who by that time had owned the Chess catalog, and they, it was the beginning of all that sampling era. Yeah, and it was yeah. They, we, I was too far ahead of time for them. They didn't even get what we were trying to do. So uh, we just let it sleep. And then uh, in, in 2000, so, you know, maybe in 2016, uh, Keith called me up. He wanted to build a little studio. Could I loan him some money for some equipment? Um, and he said, I'll work on tracks. Let's get up with this idea. And we came up with the idea of doing that album again. But this time, getting musicians to play and a vocalist. Mm -hmm. And I suggested Bernard Fowler who is, to me, one of the greatest R&B uh, yeah. singers around. I mean, he sings with the Rolling Stones to this day on all their tours. He's just a great singer. It's amazing to me that he's never become a superstar on his own, but that doesn't always happen for people. Anyway, uh, we, we began to make the record, and then it, it comes to the U.K., and I'm in the U.K. The publisher of the chess songs was B, was up. Uh, BMG in the UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, Alistair Nurbury, the president at that time of BMG Records, he said, what are you doing? And I played him like sort of a few tracks, a rough demo of this idea Keith and I were working on. And he loved the cut, the high temperature that actually became the single of this new one. And he loved that song. And he said, I buy this for BMG. And I said, yeah, of course. We were shocked. I was shocked. So uh, we made a deal with a lawyer, a signed contract. The album was not even finished. Um, and then um, things started to happen. The Brexit thing came mm. up. It was right before COVID. And then I had a horrible experience in November of 2019. I had had six years of back problems. And in 2019, I got off, my, uh, I got off the chair and my left leg went work. I mean, I couldn't walk. My back, Gosh, I really? had this horrible spinal, you know, collapse, you know, on, on part of my spine. And uh, then my nightmare began of uh, having double spinal surgery. <sighs> the first one failed. Um, having to learn to walk again. And the first, the year after surgery, I was laying on, I just was laying on the couch watching the news all the time. Mm, uh, that's not good for your head, is it? And learning, <laughs> and no, and learning, learning to walk. I started, you know, with, with crutches, then a cane and a walker and, and a brace and little by little walking and walking and you can walk, I walk fine now, I wear a brace. But it took, during that, so I got bored, I called Keith. And um, I said, you know, what if we, I'm going to see if I can get that album back. Can we, let's make it better. Let's do something with it. I can't sit around anymore. I need to do something creative. And I called Alistair. And by now, COVID had hit. So offices were closed. Mm. And part of the deal was I was going to come to the UK. We were going to make a video. 
But this, you know, everything got delayed because of Brexit and then COVID. So I said, Alistair, will you sell me back that album? And he said, no, better than that, I'll give it back to you. Wow. Because they were the, they're the publishers, you know, and uh, obviously they were delayed. Their, re their releases were delayed probably for years with the COVID thing and, you know, the whole thing. Their offices were closed. And then we began. We added new tracks. We added musicians. We made it into this final album. That took another eight or ten months. And... Uh, then my son, who's uh, just who, who's it, just turned 42, um, also uh, is in the music business, third generation. He said, let's put this thing out. So we did, we, you know. We yeah. started this label called CZYZ, which is the original chess name from Poland. Oh, of course, yeah, because of the yeah. Kurdish connection. You, yeah. you know, you arrived in America, and the customs guy said, how do you pronounce that? And it was pronounced Chez. He said, oh, now it's chess, you know? That's how it began. <laughs> Keep it simple. That's the story. And the album came out great, and it got me off the couch and, uh, and got me doing stuff again. And, you know, it's not... I guess I'm, I'm like a, a, a racehorse trainer who every morning goes out to the track, and he watches the horse run, and he sees a good one, and he wants that horse to win. Yeah. I love hits, you know. Yeah. I love making records. I just love making records, producing records, projects. It's just something I love to do. And uh, it's a dying thing because I come from being a record man. You do it all. That's what I'm doing now. Yeah. Thinking of the project, making it in your head, and then making the project. Wow. Yeah, well, it's, it sounds like this, this album, really, you've really worked for it. And the idea of you, like, you know, coming a cropper with all the political troubles and then the pandemic and you're back. I mean, that you really have struggled yeah. to, to get this thing going. So, yeah, I did. And, and, uh, and so that, that, that was the situation. So the album just came out August 11th. It's getting a lot of great response. Uh, we're getting, you know, I, I, we're getting a lot of PR in the next few months. A lot of people like it. We're getting, we'll see what happens. And uh, I'm talking to you now, promoting it. You know? Yeah, exactly. But 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 I'm proud of it. It's a, it's really a great record. The musicians are just, you know, even going back to chess all the way back. The secret of chess was the best musicians. You know, yeah. the best the best sound. My father didn't know anything about music, but he soon learned that that. The best music sold the most records. Yeah, those yeah. were the hits. And yeah. you know, it, he 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 showed me, like we had this famous bass player and producer of blues called Willie Dixon. Yeah, and he showed me how Willie Willie was the guy that got the band together to play on all the blues records. And and and, uh, and uh, well, you know, that was the secret. And of course, in that era, these guys didn't even have telephones. So Willie knew where the girl they were sleeping with that week, and he would get the band together. And that's how it began with knowing that the quality of the musicians really was the first step, you know, yeah. in, 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 in making it great. It really was. And it's, so it's, that, that's, the, that's how it began. It's interesting because, like, you know, when one thinks of a record label, you kind of... You think of everything being compartmentalized, you know, so-and-so does this, so-and-so does that. But in those early days of chess, it, it was kind of, I mean, a one or two man band, maybe we'll say. But, you know, you had to kind of wrangle the artists. You had to get the studio. You had to make sure all the equipment was working. You had to do it all, didn't you? It wasn't, it wasn't like a, 
you know, a producer didn't sit in an office and oh, say, go in I, there. I, no, I remember the first chess before we built our own studios. They made a glass window between two offices that people worked in all day. And they'd have a wire recorder. And that's how they cut demos. I remember the first session I saw in that situation where there was only two mics. So they would walk up to the mic and then wait back off to do their part. <laughs> so yeah, it was very basic and raw. Although we did start in 1947 using, there was a great studio in Chicago named Universal. Um, and that, from that we built our own. But we realized it was the quality of the studio, the quality of the musicians, and the quality of the artists. We had so many fabulous artists. Mm -hmm. It's mind boggling to me. Eamon, I've been riding around for the last two years in my car with 45 chess CDs. That's all I've been playing. <laughs> and I have become a fan. Before yeah. I was a businessman. Oh my God. I've, I'm, I'm enamored with little Walter now. Wow, I could see why Miles Davis called him a genius. I what? mean, it was just so... It's a, some of these records are so spectacular that my father and uncle made. And then the crazy part is, I hear my father and uncle's voice on a lot of them oh, you know, wow. that I haven't heard. You hear your father. Yeah. You're 80 years old and when he's, when he's in his 20s, you know, yeah. and it blows your mind, you know, yeah. I'll bet know. it does. It's funny because those, you know, that whole era, that the music was, you know, it, it's so timeless because not only are there great songs in that, but there was a, like, I guess it, for my age, it would be like a punk spirit. You know, there was a rebellious spirit in all of that music. And that hasn't been lost at all. I can remember when I worked in my record shop when I was like in my teens, um, we had a, a chess compilation come in and it was it was £1.99, which is super cheap. And I bought that. And honestly, that record changed my life. But I wasn't a child of that era at all. And my parents weren't even into that sort of music. But for some reason, it creeps across the decades and still makes sense and still had like a an excitement and a rebelliousness to it. Your, your father and, and, and the whole of the setup at Chess, they were kind of swimming against the tide quite a lot because well, you're, you're an immigrant family that come in, you're working with black musicians recording music that, you know, at the time was not accepted in the mainstream at all. Not, yet, not accepted or even played at all. It wasn't, yeah. not even, you know, and not only that, you had the race, the racial aspect, you know, mm, before yeah. civil rights in America, you know. And you end up, you know, in this situation where you're, you're working with Malcolm X's wife and putting out that album, which must be a, a, a hell of a, a digger's prize now. It must be a collector's item, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm um, sure it is. Uh, but, you know, that's exactly what happened, you know, and it's full circle. But the thing is, music, you know, music is magic. Even if you say, what is magic? The most apparent magic is music. It changes the way you feel. You just mm -hmm. described it. How when you were younger, yeah, how it changed, you know, it's something about it. It's magical. And, um, and this blues music was really special because you had, for instance, chess was in Chicago um, in the 40s after World War II on, over a million black people came up to Chicago from the South. People who couldn't read or write in, in mm -hmm. generally, they, you know, this is soon after slavery, fourth civil rights, and they ran into all those big city problems. Yeah. At the same time, blues evolved from being acoustic on a porch in Mississippi 
to the amp electric guitar amplifier, loud drums, bars opening, guys working in the steel mill all week, making more money than they ever made in their lives in a month because they didn't even have factories in the South. Mm-hmm. And but they ran into all these problems. And I, you know, how I'm saying this to you is I didn't really understand the purpose of when I first started making compilations and blues lyrics. But as I, as life went on, I saw that there, it's like psychoanalysis, you know, it's therapy. Mm. It's like they're about people's troubles with women, people's troubles with money. And it's great when you're having trouble to know that it's a shared experience. And that, and the original purpose of a lot of those early chess records, you know, was the the blues that really shared all these experiences in a way very poetic. That's why all these chess artists, in a way, are like poets, you know. Yeah. But then Chuck Berry in Italy hit in 1955, and boom, that's when white kids really dis- that's what was our first crossover. Mm. And uh, in fact, when Maybelline broke big in 1955. Most radio in America thought Chuck Berry was white. Mm-hmm. When the word got out that he was black, I would say 50% of the airplay stopped wow. of the big white stations. Isn't that amazing? That is, that is. Yeah, that's, those are the kind of stories you don't really hear. But yeah. there, was enough, uh, there was enough momentum along with the invention of the car radio and teenagers driving cars, you know, mm-hmm. riding around on my automobile, no particular place to go. So you got the car radio, the beginning of rock and roll, the birth of the beat, and it exploded. And we just happened to be, uh, you know, by pure chance, it wasn't, oh, we're going to make rock and roll. Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley came six months apart, and it was by <laughs> pure chance, you know, and it exploded, you know. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it changed the know. world. I mean, people say, like, in, the, in my of intro, I, I said stuff, you know, like the word legend is overused and saying this changed the world or whatever, this music changed everything. But uh, this is all true of chess records because, you know, from the mid 50s, the teenager was a thing. And the last, you know, 70 years or so, you know, all of, all of the modern culture we have around music basically came through that rock and roll portal, that blues and rock and roll portal, didn't it? Yeah, definitely I th- did. I think what I find quite interesting is like, so, you know, Chess was founded and just interested in that music and not bothered about the black and white and all that sort of thing. And they, they get this music out there. They create this incredible scene that changes the whole world. It's interesting to me that um, a lot of people who are, you know, deeply associated with a particular scene, whether that be hip hop or jungle or whatever it might be, a lot of those people get so involved with the excitement of that time that nothing ever lives up to it afterwards. And it becomes like they become stuck in that time. But that doesn't appear to have happened with you. No. It didn't. Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons that with chess and with me and what I observed growing up was as the black people started making money, the black culture started making money and expanding all across America, new markets opened up. So that we it wasn't just rock and roll and blues. We discovered a jazz market. Mm. We had black, all the black comedians. Then gospel. We had Aretha Franklin's first album. Oh yes, because her father was. We had he had the first sermon. We must have sold a million seventy-eight RPM sermons wow. over five years. 
from one radio, a large, what they call the clear channel radio station in the South. Because that was, there wasn't TV uh, churches or any of those things. Mm. There weren't even churches in, through the South in those small towns. Now they were getting sermons on records, you know. Amazing. And then the com comedy on records because the, there were definitely weren't comedy clubs in yeah, the Deep yeah. South. And you wouldn't so, hear any of that sort of comedy on the no, radio at all, would no. you? No, and then of course, as and then I in, in 1967, uh, I uh, I convinced my family to let me start a label called Cadet Concept, yes. and that was going to be a psychedelic. Uh, that was the right the beginning of that whole Woodstock psychedelic era, mm -hmm. and I did. I got very lucky. I I I, I had with the Minnie Ripperton the first album. Uh, Rotary Connection with Minnie Ripperton and Electric Mud with Muddy Waters. Mm -hmm. And uh, by 1969, I had had three or four albums on the charts. And but then what happened is uh, my father sold, decided to sell the company because we had started, he, not we, it was really him and my uncle had started Black Radio in Chicago, mm -hmm. WVON, Voice of the Negro. And it became, wow. of course, like Chess Records, a hit. Who was yeah. number one? Little small powered station became uh, the number one nighttime radio station, and uh, it was purchased. And he, what he wanted to do, they wanted to start black television, so they decided to sell Chess Records. Um, and I was that was like the, uh, the best and worst part of my life. I mean, because. I was raised to run it and take it over. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they said it's going away. But uh, you'll get enough money from the sale to start your own label. Don't worry. And I was actually going to start a label, and Boz Skaggs was going to be my first artist. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah, really. But then my father died at the end of '69, and that was it. You know, that was the year I had uh, Fathers and Sons album. You know, I was had all. It was my best year in the business. He died. Without a will, and and the oh. government took all the money. I never got the money to start a label. No, and I was sitting around. No, I was sitting around, depressed, doing nothing. Uh, my marriage was in bad shape. Everything was terrible, and I got a call from a guy named Bob Krasno. He owned a label called Blue Thumb, and later oh, yeah, on he yeah. became the yeah. Later on he became the the president of Electra Records. Mm -hmm. Years later, but, but he said Marshall. I had known him for years. He said Marshall. Uh, I heard the Rolling Stones are looking for uh, a new manager, a new label. They, they're done with uh, Decca and Alan Klein. Let's do something together. And I didn't really want to work with anyone. I had a really, my ego's big now, I guess, but it was much bigger <laughs> then, way bigger. You know? Well, with and, good reason. Uh, you did all right, yeah, didn't yeah. you? <laughs> At least I could say that, you know, with a smile on my face. But I said no. I said, uh, give me Mick's number. And that's how that started. Wow. I flew over. I talked to Mick. Uh, Mick Jagger, and uh, we decided uh, let's and you know let's he introduced me to all his legal his financial people, and we we started Rolling Stones Records. And of course, and they made they a, would know yeah. all about chess because they were absolutely oh, besotted by name. that label. Well, they? they got their name from the Waters record yeah. Rolling Stone. You know, oh yeah, I I they they definitely I had known them in 1964. Their manager uh, Andrew Oldham, well. If someone with a foreign, I set up the Chess European. That's another thing I did. I mm -hmm. really helped spread it in the UK with Pi Records, yes. with Marble yeah. Arch, Discount. That was the idea. Put it out cheap. That first few years, we put all the chess stuff on Marble Arch just to get all these guys out there. 
Then we started chess. So, uh, you know, all the, I, was, I was very involved coming to the UK back and forth. I knew about the stones and the animals and the yardbirds. Uh, and I knew they were enamored with chess. And I used to go on radio. It was like this jockey called Mike Raven then. I'd go on his show uh, on BBC, talk about the blues and stuff back then. So then uh, in 1964, my uncle said, there's a guy with a foreign accent on the phone. So anyone with a foreign accent got switched to me. (laughs) (laughs) So it was Andrew Oldham. He said, look, we're doing our second tour of America. I'm the manager of the Rolling Stones. Can we record in Chess Studio? That's our dream. Well, we never let outside people then. And I, I said, I'll talk to my family. And I convinced my family, let's do it. They're playing our songs. They had already done Mona. And uh, they'd done three or four songs, you know. Yeah. So I said, come on, you know, let's do it. We'll get the songwriters to come by. And uh, they came to Chicago. And of course, that was like, that, that was an interesting experience. I mean, they came there for like, I think, four days. Actually, that's where they did the first version of Satisfaction. And then that's they finished cool. it in L.A. And they even named an instrumental after our address, 2120 South Michigan. I think that's one of their own instrumentals. Amazing. So that's how I that's how I met them, and then of course, uh, and then when I went to London, uh, Mick said to me, uh, "Well, Keith lived down the street on Cheney Walk, down the road." He said, "Tonight we're going to our rehearsal room in, on in, on the East End. Come with us. Go see Keith." And then I walked down the road and I knocked on Keith's door, and some guy, uh, his houseman or whatever it was, an Italian guy answered. And I went up the stairs, and there was Keith with Graham Parsons, you know, <laughs> who invented country rock, you know, sitting behind this big yellow grand piano writing songs. Wow. And amazing. the first thing Keith said to me, man, you look different. Because when they came to Chicago, I was, a, at that era, you had to be a super sharp-dressed man, you know, yeah, yeah. You know and drive Before the best the, car. The That's the how your, power, your, yeah. artist respe- your artist respected you. Yeah. If you, you know, so... But by the time I got to uh, Keith's house, I had jeans on, you know, and a T-shirt. <laughs> and that was the first remark Keith Richards made to me. Man, you look different, you know. Uh, and so they took me to East London that night in the car. And it was the first time I saw all the, uh, those little gas heaters at every window, you know. Yeah. You put the, the, the pens in to get the heat in your house. I said, what's all those glowing lights? Yeah, those are heaters. And then we got to the uh, a basement cellar studio in this old building. And what was on the wall? My poster of Electric Mud. Wow. So I knew wow. that was Omen. That was an Omen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then we made within a couple of weeks that so we had a deal and that, that we founded Rolling Stones Records. And that, you know, the first album was Sticky Fingers. And, what a rec- what a first and, uh, record yeah, to pull out of the know, bag, by the way. Exile <laughs> on Main Street. And I, I just loved it. I was in heaven. Yeah, um, you know. I mean, that uh, was their uh, imperial phase, really, because like as far yeah, as albums great. with Mick. Oh yeah, with Mick Taylor, I thought always oh, that the Mick Taylor Keith Richard combination was just brilliant. The interplay of the two different styles. They even played two different, you know, two different kinds of guitars. I love that was a great era. Mm-hmm. Um, although Ronnie Wood's a fabulous, you know, I have nothing bad to say about him. Of course, they're still the Rolling Stones. But I love that was a great creative era for them and, and for me. And they allowed me free reign. Um, we were originally going to have a label. It was it, that's why we started Rolling Stones Records. Yeah. The original idea was, uh, and you know, we made that tongue lips logo, mm-hmm. and uh, that was involved in that uh, on the car from Amsterdam to Rotterdam where we were recording. 
I went to get oil and a, a petrol in a Shell petrol station. And in Chicago, the one where I lived had said Shell in red letters underneath that yellow shell. Mm -hmm. But but in, in Holland, it doesn't say the letters. It's known so much. So I said to the Stones, we need a logo. Um, we need a logo that doesn't need words. And that's how the idea of that tongue and lips without any words wow. came up. That yeah. one idea must have, I mean, I don't want to talk money, but let's talk money. That, I mean, just that one idea that must have, you know, sparked well, a, a million well, dollar industry on its own. It wasn't me. I didn't design the tongue and the lip. No, but the idea to do it. Do you know what I mean? The idea, the idea to, to, to well, We were ahead of our time. My dad used to always say with all those psychedelic albums, you know, being ahead of the time is being behind time. You know, mm. you have to be on time. But yeah, we, we were ahead of our time and uh, with that. And um, that was, a, it was great. And we were going to sign other artists. In fact, we were talking to Jimi Hendrix who was going really? to be free on contract outside of the U.S. So he was going to be hopefully the next artist. And then we would give him his own logo. And we <laughs> wanted to see, that was the idea of the label, to sign yeah. stars who were tired with the major labels as their contracts expired. Give them their own special thing, their own special label. Because we saw the beginning of merchandising. We knew yeah. that was coming, you know. Yeah, and again, you know, that period, a lot of people won't, won't know about this, but, um, you know, the, the, the psychedelic era in many ways was at odds with what had come before with rock and roll and stuff. But you, uh, with, especially with the cadet label, you, you kind of were instrumental in merging those two. Tell us a little bit about Electric Mud and, and what you did with those albums well, with Muddy Waters yeah, and Howling Well, Wolf. what happened is, yeah, I mean, I got the my idea for Electric Mud was, you know, my... It began when we, we did our one of our first blues album was Muddy Waters Live at the Newport Jazz Festival. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the beginning of the album era. You, you, we knew it wasn't a black market because they didn't have players. They didn't have mm -hmm. record players. It was the beginning of the 33 player. You know, only people with you know, more affluent people had mm -hmm. uh, this record players and, and systems. So all of a sudden we started getting um, sales from Boston on that album. And we realized, you know, that God, it's white people buying blues albums. <laughs> wow. So, wow, Marshall, you know, you're the one start putting together blues compilations for this new white market. So basically I, I had the, all this early experience of putting together, I had the, the folk blues series, the real folk blues, super blues, I kept making these compilations, aiming them at the white market, because at the same time, the, the, in America, this kind of uh, alternative radio was beginning. So mm. you could get airplay and exposure, and, rec and music festivals, and the Woodstock Festival came, and then the Atlantic, and this whole new generation of you know, pot-smoking, long-haired, rock and roll people, and then the psychedelic wave hit with the LSD and the mushrooms, and I was part of that era. I mean, mm -hmm. I went to see Tim Leary. Bob Dylan opened up for him wearing white robes, you know. I mean, this is the early part. <laughs> uh, what, what I would give to have been at your side during all this. Amazing. Yeah, well, you know, I, but, you know, I, did, I just was part of that era. It was my era, you know. Mm -hmm. and, I just, and I had the key to the studio. And Muddy Waters was, was like a grandfather to me. He used to call me his white grandson, you know. <laughs> I knew him. I mean, him and my father were really friends. They both, Muddy, they both would say that without each other, they both wouldn't have made it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Muddy would say, you know, your dad made me and I made him. And I would say, yeah, you know, those were the first big hits we had and hers, his first big taste of success, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I, money was not, blues was not selling to black people anymore. They were getting into Motown, R&B, soul music was starting. Mm -hmm. And I, and my, I said, look, I want to do this. I've got this idea. I want to put together, I knew again, like I just put the same way I put together this new album band. I knew all, I knew a handful of the top young black avant-garde musicians at that time. Mm -hmm. And I put the word out. And I ended up putting together this great band of, you know, young black musicians. Pete Cozy, who later played with Miles Davis, Maurice Jennings with Ramsey Lewis. These were like great, the great musicians where it all starts. I had already learned my lesson from my family about that. And uh, I picked the songs and um, I, you know, I picked the songs and I told Muddy, you know, uh, this is my idea. Trust me, uh, because this is a way for you to make some money and, and there's a whole new market out there. Mm -hmm. And my family was very intent on, you know, my job was to push our product to this new market, you know. That's yeah. really what so I'm you, doing you, now. You got I'm the support. You got the support yes. to actually try and push things forward, yeah? Yes, because I, I said this the other day to someone and I realized that I never thought of it. One of the great perks of being a record producer um, especially a record man, is you get used to failure. So mm. you're not afraid to try things, you know, because most of what you do fails. I mean, I made a lot of records that I had, you know, before I made one that sold. Mm. And you get used to failure. You, it's a great, it's, it's a toughening experience. It rolls off your back and you make another record and you make another one. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I had the support of my family. Um, although my father would sometimes he say, man, that's a, you know, he said, I don't know, too much. You know, they make jokes about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it must have been confusing but, to them. But it, Muddy Waters know. became the biggest selling Muddy Waters blues album we ever had, yeah, quickly. Yeah, and, I, I, and then, no, then a nightmare happened. After like three months, the album exploded. Mm -hmm. I remember we shipped like 150,000. That was a lot. I mean, blues albums, if you shipped 10,000 back then, you know, this was big. It broke on the white radio. I drove across country visiting all those alternative radio stations and they put it right on, you know. And in Rolling Stone magazine, which was the Bible of that generation at the time, it's when it was like a newspaper before yeah. it was, you know. Uh, they, some guy wrote an article saying the worst blues album ever made. Mm -hmm. And half the airplay stopped overnight. And, you know, and then, you know, that's, that, that changed it. Years later, recently, some article the same writer wrote it. Took him forty years to love it. He loves it. Now, so. <laughs> yeah, he missed it. You got him in the end, Marshall. Well, it was my father. Yeah, my father's thing. Ahead of your time or behind, it's the same thing. If you're too far ahead, people aren't going to like it. You know? Yeah, but I mean, you know? so you've, you've done that. So you've, you've grown up in chess, and then you've, you've been part of this psychedelic revolution, and you're working with the Rolling Stones, and that continues on. Minnie Ripton, all these amazing artists still coming through. Now, that, all that's a lot of progression already. Um, but when hip-hop came along, this, this is a completely different animal, isn't it? Because, the, like you say, it was the start of all this sampling and using old records yeah. to make new records. And yeah, that but... was controversial, wasn't it? How did you first get hold of hip-hop? Was it just... Because, I, well, I went, I went to uh, Sugar Hill to yeah. buy the chess catalog. Was it literally that, yeah? 
Just, yeah, yeah. And then I went to work there. I drove there every week. I had a go, two people working for me putting together these albums. I got exposed to it. I was there when they created the, the, these classics, White Lines, The yeah. Message. I was there when that all happened. You what know? did you think and of that? Because that was so I different. loved it. No, because to me it was the new version of the blues. Yeah. It was street poetry again, just being put out with a different beat. The names even were the same. Muddy Waters, Grandmaster Flash, yeah. Big Daddy. You know what I mean? The, yeah. the, 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 there was a similarity of generations, a similarity of spreading uh, street. That, that's why I say it's like poetry. It's spreading stuff from the street to the public. Yeah. All those early hip-hop records are real. That's real serious street stuff, you know? Yeah, for you sure. Know, and, and, you know, that's drugs, still what it trades you know, on, you know? It still is. It still is in most cases, you know? And, of course, white kids discovered hip-hop like they discovered uh, blues, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it expanded. But, yeah. But I, I, I got right into the hip-hop thing. I understood it immediately. That wasn't the problem, you know? That's what uh, I was I wondering. I had no problem with it. In fact, I loved it. I thought it was great, you know? Yeah, just straight yeah. off the bat, it's straight into that. That's yeah, when that guy Fletcher, when he wrote uh, White Lines, uh, I was there and he came and read me the lyrics. And this is just this is just like a great blues song, you know? He's yeah. talking about what's happening on the street. And uh, I got really exposed to the culture. And then, then I got, uh, then I got, became friends with KRS-One. I did this comic book project. Tell me about that because I read about that yesterday evening and I just thought, <laughs> he did what? Yeah, was, and I still, look at that, I still have a box of them, man. Marvel <laughs> send comics, me one. The well, here's what, I will send me your address. I will send you one. Do you have a cassette player? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're psychosonic comics. They're sold with a cassette. And I got the idea. My daughter was three years old, and I don't know if they have it in the UK, but they used to have, they have these kids' cassettes then that see, turn the page when the dog barks. You know? Yeah, yeah, I remember that, and yeah. She's, yeah. she's in, the, in the car seat, I'm looking in the back mirror playing it in my stereo, driving her to nursery school, and she's turning the page, and I said, shit. And I, rem I saw at Sugar Hill how uneducated these young black kids were. Yeah, they really couldn't read. It was I was sad, man. Yeah, it was it was bad. It wasn't it's reality. It's it's young, really, really sad. It was really sad to me, um, and I, I intellectually had grown enough to realize what was happening with it. You know, they were sort of stupid. They weren't educated. You know, they weren't. They didn't know. It just was. Uh, I didn't like it. I said, this is a great way. I can make a comic book. To uh, to to. I'm going to make a comic book where they turn the page. And for black kids with a cassette to learn about their history, so that's how it started. And I went to Harlem to one of the only at that time black bookstores, and I walked in. And what's a white guy doing here? But you know, <laughs> after she got it, that she felt felt my vibes. I, she, I and she was very educated kind of woman, and she gave sold me about a dozen books. Like the, you know the guy who invented the traffic light, you know, red green. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, yeah. That's a black, black man. It's yeah. a black man. Yeah. The guy who meant that open heart surgery, a black man. No, black kids do not know that. Yeah. They don't have any idea of all these, these good things, these amazing things. So I wrote a story, and it was called, uh, Mo, uh, what did I call it? Uh, Mojo and his magic, no, yeah, Mojo, after that, Kenyatta. Uh, yeah. Mojo and his magic drum. And I told this lawyer I knew, I said, you know, I've got this idea, I need a rap guy. He said, well, I manage KRS-One. Come on, I'll set up a meeting with you. 
So I went to his office. I didn't walk this giant six foot four. I'm a, I, I'm only five foot six, you know. This <laughs> he's giant, a big guy. I'll, I'll he's like, well, but him, I, yeah. I was used to Howl Wolf, man, who's bigger than KRS One, you know. Yeah. You know, and he sat down with me and uh, he read what I wrote. He said, man, this is great, but it's too white. You write yeah. too white, man. So that's how my relationship with KRS was. And we became friends. And every, I was coming to the city two or three days a week then. Um, I had this job running the publishing company at the same time. And he would come to my hotel. And he always had this guy. This is a great hip hop story. He always had this guy with him, this other big six foot four guy named ICU, spelled like ICU. Yeah. Who lived underneath the railroad, Grand Central's train station. Underground, there was this whole culture. Oh, the, the Molman thing, where they, where they all yeah, check yeah, over Yeah, the, man, yeah. this is a true story. And they come in, and AKRS hated air conditioning. So it was in the summer, I always had to shut the air conditioning off. And it wasn't a four, it was like a three-star hotel, you know. Because yeah. I was going there every, every week. And I opened the window, and it would come with these pints of uh, ice cream, him in this ICU. And then they let them melt on the window and then drink, drink them. Yeah. <laughs> this was crazy. And him and I became friends, man. I went yeah. to when his kid was born, and I knew his first wife, and then his second wife became his manager. Yeah. And we created the idea. And, you know, we, he, the, we first did it in his hip hop studio. We did it with real people, and they couldn't read the script. Eamon, they couldn't read oh the script. Oh, my God, man. yeah, of course. They would read it like, I am going, you know, yeah, it was yeah, a script yeah. with music. You'll get it. I'm going to send you that. You're going to hear it. I'm, I'm going to send you my address now. I'm going to hold yeah, you yeah, that. Yeah. You're going to get it. I'm going to post it. I'll post it. I'll post it Monday. I promise you. Uh, but anyway, so that's that's what happened. So then we got. Then I said, "What are we gonna do, man? We got this great script, the story." Uh, so we said, "Well, let's." I'll, there's a black acting agency in New York. I'll hire. I'll go. I'll make you know. And I hired a room with a tape recorder where people come to audition. And uh, all these kids came, and man, it was still they could not really read. Better, but still, that's yeah. really inspired me. I gotta get this book out. So then I took it to, I took it around to Mar. I went right. I started right at the top. I went to Marvel Comics. Right, right on, yeah. Marvel, and it turns out that the, at that time, the president of Marvel Comics, he uh, he was sort of he 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 was a collector. He had bought at one of Elvis's shirts for five thousand dollars. I gave him one of my father's business cards from Chess Records, framed. Next thing I know, I had a deal with this comic, but we came up with an idea. I mean, it was, I had to get a, we got this famous, this great black illustrator, Kyle Baker. I found him, I was buying a baseball card, one of these shops that sells weird stuff. Mm -hmm. and I asked the guy, one of those, you know, kind of weird nerds in comic books and baseball cards. I said, is there any black uh, illustrators for a comic book? Oh, it's a great guy, Kyle Baker. And I looked him up in the phone book. So he joined our project. And the three of us became partners. And we made this kind he drew it. We even have an animated video. You can actually see it. If you go on the, the there's a, I have a YouTube channel that for two years I've been building with another great Richard Ganter, another UK friend of mine from the Universal days. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing it for my young grandchildren so they can get the history digitally. Yeah. So we've got, yeah. but on them, putting everything in this little video. Uh, from the comic is on it's called the chess records tribute channel on youtube check it out you can see the video of that uh, 
the little video clip of Break the Chain. It used to be around your foot. Now it's around your head. That was yeah. the lyric of the thing. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, and, so it was amazing. And and so they, but they failed. They failed, Marvel. They could not. It was for black kids. They didn't know how to sell it to uh, black kids. They couldn't get it into those shops in the ghetto. Yeah. You know, I couldn't get it to the school system because it was too hip-hop. That time, yeah. hip-hop was like too street. It's funny, and, isn't uh, it? Because, you know, KRS-One, is, he's, his whole career is, has been based on edutainment. His whole yeah. whole shtick is about, yeah. you know, uplifting yeah. people who don't know the history. And, and, he and still showing. does it. He's a preacher. He's got a yeah. church in yeah, Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Still, doing yeah, yeah, yeah. still doing it. I've talked to him recently. Oh, uh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love, <laughs> I, I love the but, fact that you keep coming up with you know uh, with with the newest things and seem unfazed by yeah. it and encouraging by i've it. got another one now i'm working on i can't you know i'm very since i stopped having to make money mm -hmm. i've gotten more creative more ideas in other words come up you know yeah. once you, because i retired with enough probably to live the rest of my life yeah. uh so then I, it's things start to expand but I, i'm working on another one i've, I've got with keith we've got a fabulous it's gonna be keith's album fabulous instrumental tracks featuring his fabulous percussion and then i've got another one called chest rides little TikTok kind of things you play for young kids that only play with headphones and telephones yeah yeah of course yeah. I, mean, I got other eyes so yeah I'm, I, it's keeping me going uh, well, him, and i'm i'm loving doing this, this project <laughs> really got me young again you know well i, I love it you know the, the the title of the album is new moves and it is yeah. very new. It's, it's got new instrumentation and new new vocal treatments. You yourself keep making these new moves. You're 81, and you seem to have <laughs> twice the energy I've ever had. <laughs> and here's here's a wrap. 81 and still having fun, you know? <laughs> yes, yes, mate. I love that. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah. And you know what? I, you know, our, our podcast is very much, we try and um, talk about what it's like to be a fan and to be obsessed by music. And... If ever we've chosen the right guest, it's definitely you today because everything you've said from your very earliest uh, sort of memories of growing up around chess, right up to now, you know, at 81, you've still got that fire burning in you. And that for me is just wonderful to hear, Marshall. Yeah. And it's great that you're doing what you're doing. And, you know, you're part of the guys like you are what keeps me going you know because i need the outlets man i need the promo well listen i, I i'm a record man yeah. <laughs> you are indeed i could quite happily talk to you for another hour or two i'm sure what a lovely conversation and i wish lovely, you the Eamon. very best with the the new moves album i mean and I, I i can't wait to hear uh, all my friends in the uk uh, when is this running so this will come out um probably not next month to be the month after because we, we do a when monthly you drop, show when you drop me your address drop me okay remember to drop me lines so i could have all my uk friends listen in i know? will do and I'll, I'll i'll tell you when it's going to be published as well and, just like and a, a also, couple of days before. after you check out this comic book drop me a line i'm curious oh mate know? i'm so excited about that uh, yeah yeah you're gonna get <laughs> Marshall, right, i feel i feel genuinely uplifted that was a really lovely yeah, conversation I do too. no i do too man i'm sitting here with a big smile it's seven in the morning Beautiful. And I haven't even had my coffee yet. So there you well, go. Go and have your cup of coffee. And thank you so much for talking to What Goes Around All today. All right, Eamon. Good. Nice to talk to you. You're bye a star. Bye. Cheers, Marshall. Mind.
so much for listening today we really appreciate it and uh, of course this is the point in the podcast where we say something like hey like subscribe come on now we try and do this in a gentle fashion we don't shout like and subscribe and hammer you with it all day long but it is important to the podcast so if you could just do those things maybe write a review or just recommend us to someone that would mean the world to us because uh, we do this for the love and for your good ears so thank you for doing the listening Cry